Isaiah's prophecy, we return this morning, and there we'll return again to the first chapter. Last week, Isaiah pierced our hearts with the conviction of sin. We were reminded how easily we can lament rebellion against God that can be seen in every direction, save one. We can look around us and bewail all manner of sin in every direction. But that with little profit to ourselves. It's when we look in the direction of our own hearts, when we lament and wail over our own sins, that we truly begin to profit our souls. How? Well, in this way, when we've been cut to the quick of our own hearts, then and only then are we ready for the healing balm. Listen for it now in these verses, how God, as always, in his judgment, remembers mercy. But first to prayer. Our Father, open your holy word now to us, we pray. And speak, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to begin with verse 9 and then skip down to verse 18 of Isaiah chapter 1. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now down to verse 18. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your, sk- your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool, if you are willing and obedient. You shall eat the good of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah has brought us to a great crisis. Painstakingly, he has built his case, God's case, that is, against his people. They were a sinful people. They had broken God's law. They had worshipped him or feigned to worship him from hearts that were cold and indifferent to the needs of others around them. And all of those things we see in ourselves as well. Every one of them. No more finger pointing at sinners out there. No more wagging our heads at our own spiritual fathers and mothers in Israel. Isaiah has laid his divinely inspired finger on our hearts. God grant that we may be broken by the conviction of our own sins and our failings before him. May this gracious God be gracious enough to us not to withhold this grace from us that we may be brought to a crisis over our transgressions. That we, like Isaiah later in 
chapter 6 may be brought to the end of ourselves over our sins. Now, why would I say such a thing? Why ask for a crisis? Aren't there enough crises as it is? Hasn't the past week of ice and storm been enough for us? Aren't there enough crises in the general round of life, that rounds of life that we should ask for more? My friends, this is one crisis that we will want to experience and need to have experienced. Not that there's any joy, of course, in the crisis itself, but in the resolution. Here I say Isaiah has brought us to the crisis of our sin. All of the angry wrath of God against us for our sin is is more than justified. At any moment, God might have struck down the crowning work of his creation and started with something new. Rather than coming to Adam or to Noah and their families to spare them, he might justly have wiped the slate clean right there. After the damning indictment Isaiah has presented here, we might have expected as much for our spiritual forefathers to say nothing of ourselves. Here in Isaiah 1 now, we're waiting for the other shoe to fall. But instead, mercy, grace, tender love, and care. The first glimpse of it comes in verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah, the truly remarkable thing about the church, if you think about it, is that it actually survives. Now look over the history of the church. It's been a checkered story at best, flirting over and again with the world, allowing no embracing sin to her bosom. The church has made a harlot a whore of herself again and again and again throughout the generations. And yet she has continued, sometimes by but a thread, a tiny remnant, and just a few survivors. Why? Because she's so clever? Because, because we're able to beat the odds? One reason, one lone reason, God. And not because of God's weakness does she, the sinful church, survive. Not because of his weakness, he is, as Isaiah says here, the Lord of hosts, but because of his strength and because of his power, because of his sovereign electing grace, we are spared. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, it should. It's precisely the same argument that Paul made back in Romans chapter 9, where we were there. He quoting this very passage in Romans, no less. But do you see the point? We are sinners, sinful to the core. The church is not merely like 
Sodom and Gomorrah. We are Sodom and Gomorrah. And apart from God's sovereign grace, we would continue to be what they were and suffer what they suffered. The most surprising passage in this chapter, though, must certainly begin there at verse 18. Come now. After all the judgment and all the, 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 the just uh, accusations and charges that have been made, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as, as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Here God calls his church, calls us stubbornly fixed in her sin, deeply, intractably rebellious. He invites us to the bench. The judge calls us to the bench. And there we might rightly expect that he should lean over the bench and look us in the face and pronounce a damning sentence upon us. We come before his face and it softens. He says, your sins are like scarlet. They'll be white as snow. He entreats us to to reason with him. To think over a couple of these most beautiful, most engaging images, word pictures offered by God in the entirety of Scripture to the minds and hearts of his rebellious children. Which brings me to the first point. Notice with me, first of all, that the solution for our sin is sovereignly initiated. Sovereignly initiated, by which I mean it is God who takes the initiative. God who takes the first step. God who comes. It's not we who go to God. It never is. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Adam didn't go to God. Adam ran and hid from God. That's what we do in our sin. We always flee from God. But God came, and God called him in the garden. God came to Abraham. God came to Noah. God came to Moses. God came to Samuel. God came to David. Jesus came to the world to save, seek, and to save the lost. Even us, God takes the initiative in our salvation. God took the initiative with you. You did not go to him. He came to you. He took the initiative with you and with me. Now what, I ask you, must that elicit from us? Chiefly praise. The realization that God should have come to you, to you. Of all people, he should have come to you to choose you and to seek you out for salvation, should send you into an unending string of praise and thanksgiving to him. In the words of that hymn we love to sing from time to time, reflecting on the the nature of our salvation, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. Was not I that found, O Savior, true? No, I was found of thee. 
Praise God, my brothers and sisters, that in the midst of judgment and wrath, God stopped and froze the frame and leaned over the bench and said to you, God, let's reason together. It is the reason, the only reason, why you have eternal life now. How has he done it? Or more fundamentally, we might ask, what has he done? And that leads me to the second point. Not only is our salvation sovereignly initiated, the solution for our sin is also, second, sovereignly accomplished. It had to be. You know, who could do anything about sin? The blood stain of sin that was on our hands. Remember Lady Macbeth struggling with her stain of sin in Shakespeare's classic, going about in that famous sleepwalking scene, wringing her hands in the, in the washing motion, desperate to remove that indelible spot of her guilt, of her guilty part in Duncan's murder. She cries out, out, damned spot! Such is the nature of our guilt. Yours and mine, every one of us, we all have blood-stained hands. We are all murderers. God, help us to understand that. Not with our physical hands, with our hearts. We are all rebels against God by nature. We have blood-stained hands like Lady Macbeth. Apart from someone else's washing. We, like her, are endlessly sleepwalking in the horror and the nightmare of our guilt and our despair. I tell you, if God's washing, cleansing from sin were more widely known and experienced today, many makers of those magic little sleeping pills would be out of a job today. Let none of us grow so accustomed to the cleansing we have received in Christ that we start taking it for granted. Nor let any one of us doubt it. I think that that must be, those must be the two reasons or two of the reasons that lie right at the root of why God uses these most exquisite and engaging images in picture to describe it to us. Our senses may be dull, but these things we can at least begin to understand and to, to grasp. We may be prone to doubt it, that our sins, so terrible as they are, so dark, so unforgivable in our own minds, could actually be taken away. So God uses powerful images now to to capture our hearts and to put any lingering shade of doubt and gloom to death. Our sins are like scarlet, red like crimson. It is true, devastatingly true. But for all those who are in Christ and all who will be brought into a saving relationship with him, they are as white as the snow. That snow we watched descending so beautifully this week from the sky that blanketed our landscape in brilliant purity and sparkling like the wool of a, of a lamb 
so have our sins become white and clean. How does God do this? How is it accomplished? Well, isn't it interesting that God should speak here in verse 8 of wool? Because it will be the work, as it turns out, of a lamb. Of a lamb, according to the same prophet in chapter 53, the lamb of God. We know his name today, don't we? Jesus the Christ. He will do it. Remember from last week? Remember what we do to ourselves when we persist in our sin? What were we like? What are we like? We're like men who who continually go back to, to be beaten again, who walk back into someone else's fist again and again. We continue to take to ourselves bruises and and beatings and sores from the soles of our feet to the, to the top of our head. That's what sin, sin brings upon us. And that, according to Isaiah's prophecy, is exactly what he did. Precisely what he did. The Lamb of God took on himself the blows and the beatings and the putrefying sores of sin on himself and his body on the tree. Surely, Isaiah will say later, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace By his stripes, we are healed. As dark and damning an indictment as Isaiah delivers here, woven right into the black fabric of it all, and all the way through is the golden thread, the strand of the gospel. In some places, reduced just to that, a bare strand, and others bursting forth on the tapestry in full glory and splendor. No wonder that Melanchthon, preaching at his friend Martin Luther's funeral, could say that in his view, the pure gospel had been most clearly set forth by five men. Isaiah, John the Baptist, Paul, Augustine, and Luther. Here's the message, the central message the whole scripture we can sum it up this way Jesus saves sinners and that message is the bedrock on which Isaiah's prophecy rests though it was given some 700 years before Jesus Christ appeared to men in the flesh let me put it plainly Every single one of us is a sinner. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve death, eternal death, everlasting death for our sin because we've offended the infinitely holy God. We have piqued his wrath, but isn't that a glorious word in the Bible? I think one of our favorites, but... But God, 
But God took his own wrath on himself in our place on the cross, opening the way of heaven for his people, flinging open the doors of paradise. J.I. Packer marvelously captures it all in this simple message. God saves sinners. God, the triune Jehovah, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons working together in sovereign wisdom, power, and love to achieve the salvation of a chosen people, the Father electing, the Son fulfilling the will of the Father by redeeming, the Spirit executing the purpose of the Father and Son by renewing, saves, does everything, first to last, that is involved in bringing man from death in sin to life in glory, plans, achieves, communicates redemption, calls and keeps, justifies, sanctifies, glorifies. Sinners, men, as God finds them, guilty, vile, helpless, powerless, unable to lift a finger to do God's will or to better their spiritual lot. God saves sinners. Sinners do not save themselves in any sense at all. But that salvation, first and last, whole and entire, past, present and future is of the Lord to whom be glory forever. Having said all of that, it might seem to you as if it leaves you with nothing to do. If God must do it, and he must, Sovereignly, he initiates the relationship and, and, and accomplishes our salvation, then there's nothing for us to do, right? Wrong. It is true. It is entirely true that salvation is of the Lord all by his grace and by his grace alone. And yet, and yet the scripture says, third, that all of this requires a response from you. That required response is, of course, repentance. Pick up with me again at verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool if... You are willing and obedient. You shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It is 100% true that salvation is of the Lord, that it is all of his grace, that it is an unconditional covenant, so to speak, that God makes when he comes and saves a person. But that covenant is not indifferent to the response of that person. There are requirements laid upon us as well. We must be willing. We must be obedient. 
Then Isaiah says, we'll eat of the good of the land, but if not, we shall be eaten, he says in verse 20, eaten by the sword. Eat or be eaten, those are the choices, my friends. And the real condition God himself has put in place is a willing and obedient heart on your part. In other words, God requires repentance from you. He does not require perfection, perfect obedience, of course. That is impossible. What he wants is your repentance, a heart that will turn again and again and again and again from your sin back to him in love and in submission. Grace you see, does not banish responsibility on your part. Rather, grace calls you to respond. Grace enables it. Grace calls you to responsibility. It calls you to repent of your sin and to turn to him. What this means, of course, is that the the only thing, the only thing that keeps you from having a happy and glorious relationship with God is your own stubborn heart. A responsiveness to his grace is all that he requires of you. And at the end of the day, looking back as Christians in this room will say, even that responsiveness, even repentance itself, as it turns out, in God's marvelously mysterious workings is a gift from him. Though it's still required of you. One pastor by the name of Thomas Watson, a Puritan, asked his congregation long ago, and now I ask you this day with his own language, have you repented. God looks upon you as if you had not offended. He becomes a friend, a father. He will now bring forth the best robe and put it on you. God is pacified towards you and you will, with the father of the prodigal, fall upon your neck and kiss you. Have you been penitentially humbled? The Lord will never upbraid you with your former sins. After Peter wept, we never read that Christ upbraided him with his denial of him. God has cast your sins into the depths of the sea. Another prophet said that, Micah. How? Not as a cork, but as lead. Oh, the music of conscience. Conscience is turned into a paradise. And there a Christian sweetly solaces himself and plucks the flowers of joy. The repenting sinner can go to God with boldness in prayer, and look upon him not as a judge, but as a father. He is born of God and is heir to a kingdom. 
He is encircled with promises. He no sooner shakes the tree of promise, but some fruit falls. Dear flock, you shake the tree of God's promise with your repentance and enjoy the rich fruit and sweet that falls when you do. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white.